So I could have made so much money hammering the Joey Chestnut under if I had only been allowed to bet on such things. And I'm still disappointed. I could have been rich. Yeah, but have you ever fended off anybody with a crutch <laughs> while trying to eat barbecue? How dare they? How dare the protesters elbow a dude who is in a boot while competing on national television, which we didn't get to see on national television? You know, I was watching the event. It's my vegetarian wife's favorite thing to watch on the 4th of July weekend. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I, I thought there was a blip because like one second he was at like 18 hot dogs. The next it was 26. And I'm like, did I look away? Did they just catch up? The And now I know what happened. Even Joey Chestnut doesn't scarf him down that fast. Yeah. Do we know what the protest was about yet? Yeah, it's Smithfield, the meat company. They're protesting about conditions there. Of course, Nathan's is licensed by this company. So they got on stage they elbowed him while he's in the mid-competition. And then Joey Chestnut, like a pro wrestler, puts the dude in a headlock and just like rips his head off. He later apologized. Not that he had to later apologize, <laughs> but he apologized afterwards saying like, my bad. I, I just got, I was in the heat of the moment, but. Wait a minute. He was in the heat of the moment about Smithfield Farms. Let me just say, I think Will Smith set a whole new template. Oh yeah. He showed that there's just not enough security to stop stage rushing. And then he apologized kind of later, just like this guy. Well, and then the protesters had the gall to say that he went too far. Like, yeah. you rushed him. What would you do if some guy in a Darth Vader mask appears next to you while you're trying to eat 74 hot dogs? Not appears. Elbowed him. Yes. Jordan, like, straight up elbowed him. You don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> and then the announcer, guys, the announcer for this thing is glorious. He's got that hat on, the Coney Island, the whole getup. George Shea, right? Yeah. Here's his quote. The end result of that effort on their part was to make Joey into an epic hero if he already wasn't one, which he was to elevate him further in the world of epic heroes. That was the end result. And then he goes on another quote from this guy, George Shea, when the barren hills and the cracked earth and the once proud oceans drain to sand, there will be still a monument to our existence. This man, Joey Chestnut, represents all that is eternal in the human spirit. Joey Chestnut is a force from beyond who defies the laws of physics. He is freedom, man-made, and the rock on which he stands is not a rock. It is the United States of America. <laughs> Eight to shoot, Paul, the runner! Loose ball, it's good! With 4.4 to go, Shannon, the one to follow, Shannon from the corner! The cry goes up both far and near for underdog, underdog, underdog. Joe Namath, number 12, has been the one big sidelight. He's come down here and he says the Jets are going to win. In fact, he doesn't even predict it. He says, I guarantee a Jet victory. Oh my kid, I ain't even in the guy's league. In this lifetime, you don't have to prove nothing to nobody except yourself. Underdog, Underdog. They're bigger, faster, stronger, more experienced, and on paper, they're just better. Oh my goodness! The longest shot has won the Kentucky Derby! Red strike and a stunning, unbelievable upset! Shock and awe in college basketball! Underdog! Underdog! 
I expect you boys to go out there and not take this team lightly because I promise you, they're going to come at you with everything they've got. Nobody's ever gone the distance with Creed. 11 seconds. You've got 10 seconds. The countdown going on right now. Morrow, up to Silk. Five seconds left in the game. You believe in miracles? Yes! Boy, George, the dream is alive. Speed of lightning, roar of thunder, fighting all who rob or plunder, underdog, underdog, underdog. Well, then I guess there's only one thing left to do. Win the whole fucking thing. All right, happy summer. Welcome back to the Underdogs Podcast. Again, I'm Jordan Brenner with you alongside my co-hosts, Tom Haberstrow, Peter Keating. We've got another amazing show for you today. We're going to talk MLB at the midseason mark with some interesting stats from our resident professor, Peter Keating. We're going to look at the NHL draft with our guest, Michael Shuckers. He's got a great statistical angle on who your team should pick. But before we get into all that, guys, it's basketball season. It's always basketball season mm-hmm. in the craziest sport with the craziest offseason. News hasn't dropped yet today. No one else is demanding a trade yet, although I think by the time we're done with him, Peter will be looking to move to a new podcast. <laughs> Utah Jazz, yes! I have a list of five broadcasts that I would accept as destinations. Is that your trade demand? I was just doing my best Kyrie, that's all. You need to get more out of space on that one. (laughs) That's true. You just got to be very coy, not really specific, just... Got to go. Appreciate my talents, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. the true creative ones dare to be different, Peter. (laughs) Yeah. I don't even know, has Kyrie actually demanded a trade? He is not, right? He's just kind of used that vague language that you're talking about, right? He opted in and said, uh, normal people... Blah, 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 blah. Something, something, something. And as part of me being different, I'm going to opt into my contract see <laughs> in the fall. So, guys, this is the Underdogs podcast. And I know, Tom, you're going to hit us with some good underdog moves. But while we're on the subject of KD, Kyrie, and the vanishing Brooklyn Nets, I'm wondering if the underdog scenario in all of this is that they somehow figure things out and and keep them together. And I, I say that for two reasons. One one of the priorities for both KD and Kyrie is to play together. And pretty much the only way that's going to happen is if they do it in Brooklyn. And second of all, it's it's still not 100% clear what KD's issue is other than the Nets not taking care of Kyrie financially. So is this salvageable? And is there still a, a chance that that this group runs it back next season with Ben Simmons and a couple free agent moves that suddenly would look pretty good if they were complimenting that group instead of being the main scorers on next year's team. They signed TJ Warren, who's a big high risk, high reward player where he's been out for essentially five years since the bubble (laughs) uh, with a mysterious foot injury where like the Pacers last year put out a press release saying like he's ready to go and ready to play, but we're going to shut him down. And it's like, what? It's so weird. We're in such a weird place in the NBA where it's like, we're so player friendly and so worried and concerned and paranoid about offending players that like, if a player is ready to play, they're still going to hold them out because they just want to protect their health. Right? So TJ Warren is a good signing. Although we don't have the actual money on that signing. We just have the year. It's a one year deal with the Brooklyn Nets. And then of course, Brian Winhurst. 
Fo- very focused, very strange sign uh, trade in Utah, trading Royce O'Neal, as Brian noted in his epic two minute, just masterpiece that Royce O'Neal, perfectly good role player, three and D role player, just traded to the Brooklyn Nets for in a salary dump, Utah jazz. We'll get to them in a bit, but they get Royce O'Neal. They bring back Nick Claxton. Um, they let go Bruce Brown. Um, and they are looking like they're trying to arm up for something. Uh, but Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, we saw this with James Harden, where James Harden was intimating that he wanted out and then showed up to training camp and was out of shape and then got traded halfway through the season when the Houston Rockets said, I can't do this anymore. And then when he basically went clubbing during the midseason with the Brooklyn Nets. He did the same thing and was dogging it. And then they traded him. So I, I think it's possible. It's certainly possible that this drags into training camp. I think that it's just the soap opera continues. And I don't know if Sean Marks and Steve Nash can stomach going into training camp with this swirling around and that like we can always talk about analytics and this player means this much to this player and the production and stuff. It's still a human sport and you still have to show it up to training camp and field questions from reporters. And that human element can't be denied here is that, yes, I want to say the underdog is that they just report back and they try to run it back next season and cooler heads prevail. But do they have the stomach for this? It's a great question, and and the related question is you bring up Steve Nash in particular. Is there anyone with the gravitas and the insight to get through to those guys? Kyrie and KD, at the very least, would we say they are temperamental? And is there anyone who could speak their language psychologically and convince them that, you know what, whatever issues were there and whatever long-term commitment isn't coming to Kyrie from the Nets— they still want to play together, and this is still the best place for them to do it. Is is any is does even that person even exist in the world? Let alone whether is Steve Nash the guy to do it? Well, the funny thing is that Kevin Durant was reportedly a large driver to get Steve Nash as the head coach from their time together in Golden State. So what? Like every step of the way, they've capitulated to Kyrie and Kevin Durant's demands. It seems. Um. They fired Kenny Atkinson. They bring in Steve Nash, who's KD's guy over back in Golden State. Um, you know, Kyrie and KD wanted James Harden, and then they bring him in, and then they don't want him in again, so they trade him. Uh, the whole DeAndre Jordan contract, which is very bizarre, and then they have a perfectly good Jared Allen, 22-year-old, who turned into an all-star, and also they had Nick Claxton, who they just brought back. So a total disaster with the DeAndre Jordan signing. It just seems to me that like this story, we've only gotten like 30% the way through it. There's so much more that needs to happen. Why did KD make this trade demand? Still unclear. He's tweeting about Chet Holmgren's amazing night in his (laughs) debut at Summer League and about his shoes. He's wearing KDs, but he's not talking about the trade demand. (laughs) This is so bizarre. It's so bizarre that we're what a week into this and we still have no comments from anybody about this trade demand, except that there was a trade demand that was tweeted by, I guess, leaked by Rich Kleiman, his manager. Look, sometimes there are silly causes and sometimes there are righteous causes. In this case, I don't know what the hell the cause is at all. So having stipulated that the Nets have done everything a reasonable people could do and more to support Durant and everything he's asked for and everything he's wanted, 
How does that cut? Do other teams look at that and say, this is what we're going to put ourselves through? Let me ask you guys a very simple couple of questions. Since I'm now having gone through a 14-minute nuclear self-imposed meltdown about the Utah Jazz on our last on our last show, let me let me do a couple of question askings and involve the Jazz in this a little bit. If I said to you, Kevin Durant is a top blank all-time player in the league. Top, what's your number? One of the top 50, one of the top 20. What do you, where would you put him? I think he's top 20 for sure. 15 at worst. 15, 12 in there. Yeah. Okay. And then if I said, <laughs> just to jump to the jazz for a second, Rudy Gobert is a top what player in the league right now? Not all time, but just like, where would you rank among the top X number of players in the league? 35. 25. Yeah. Okay. So comparing the hall to what Gobert brought back, okay? I mean, if you're comparing a top 25 player in the league to what you expect to get back for a top 15 player of all time, who's going to match what the Nets are correctly estimating they should be able to get back in a trade for Durant? Well, that's a great point. And, and I actually heard Zach Lowe mention something similar about how the initial reaction was, wow, the Timberwolves uh, had to give up that much for Gobert. What a, what a favor it did the Nets to set the market even higher. But he was saying it's actually the opposite. It sets huge amount of pressure be- to, for them to, to top what is almost an untoppable offer. They, ha- they have to get a young all-star and multiple picks. And, and, and there's not a lot of that out there. It's why I think uh, the Pelicans ultimately. Aha, yes, your Pelicans, your Pellies. My Pellies, well, I'm owning those, those, uh, those championship tickets at plus 6,000 and plus 5,500. If they can offer Brandon Ingram and some of those picks they got from the Lakers, that's a compelling move, I think. They have five first-round picks on top of their own first round picks going forward. They have a couple pick swaps and a couple firsts from their Drew Holiday trade and the Anthony Davis trade. And you wonder, what are you going to do with those? You got to you gotta uh, cash in your chips at some point, right? So I think they are the most likely of the trade partners. I know that's an underdog, underrated take, um, is that the, the New Orleans Pelicans are in the driver's seat here because – who who else is going to be able to offer a young all-star in Brandon Ingram who plays the same position as Kevin Durant? So it's a, it's a, it's a swap in swap out situation. You don't have to uproot your entire roster to make way for this new incoming star. Um, and you get the picks and God forbid they throw our, our guy Herb Jones no. into the deal. Can't happen. Oh, non-starter. Oh, you're finding ways to turn a sour on this transaction. <laughs> Do you think KD knows what an honor it would be to play with Herb Jones? <laughs> Do you think that could turn him around and t- on his wish list of teams to go to? Yeah, I think I should have mentioned Herb Jones before Brandon Ingram, right? Like he is the the jewel of that trade package if the if it were to come to be. Yeah, maybe KD, that's what the holdup is. <laughs> KD knows that there's a trade package that Sean Marks wants to sign off on, but it includes Herb Jones. Herb Jones, excuse me, Herb Jones. And he just says, no, like Herb Jones can't be in the deal. I need to play with that guy. And look, if he didn't, if he didn't know before, he's enough of a media mogul to have listened to this podcast where he would have picked up that information. Right. Well, like I find it fascinating because 
couple weeks ago, I decided to take Bobby Marks at ESPN, my guy, Bobby Marks at ESPN, take his projected average annual salary of his, of the free agents, everyone at seven and above $7 million and above. And I looked at the board numbers from John Hollinger, our friend, John Hollinger over at the athletic, he did a projected average annual salary, um, their value on the open market based on his analytics. And I merged those two numbers together for all the big free agents out there. So I have, I don't know, 25, 30 free agents and how their actual salary matched up to their predicted or expected salary. And Bruce Brown is one of the best acquisitions, one of the biggest steals of free agency. So if you're going by the theory like, hey, the Nets are just reloading for KD and Kyrie, it's all a bunch of hot air. It's a bunch of sage smoke from Kyrie and they're going to run it back. You don't lose Bruce Brown at that number. Two years, $13 million? Especially they didn't even make an offer to him. He didn't hear from them. That's crazy. There's nothing better than when you have a gut instinct and then you see analytics that support it. So thank you, Tom, because I I was going to come in with Bruce Brown as my steal of free agency. I love the move for Denver. I love the way he can play with Jokic without the ball. They still have issues. They still need another shot creator, depending on what happens with Jamal Murray and Michael Porter and what they get back. But I love that fit. He can guard multiple positions. He's part of this underdog. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Ish Smith is on the team. How dare you say that That's they true. don't have a shot creator. He's the greatest of all time shot of something. <laughs> He's part of that underdog group. We keep talking about with guys like Gary Payton himself, smaller undersized guys who can play up and just find these new roles for themselves. I, I love that move. So he's number two on the list of the biggest steal of free agency. I'll start at number five. You guys ready for this? Drum roll. Biggest Drum steals roll. of free agency, according to Bobby Marx's and John Hollinger's projections for their average annual salary and how much they actually got. At number five. Andre Drummond, wow. two years, $6.6 million contract with the Chicago Bulls to be their backup center. Their average annual expected was at 6.9. So he basically, the total salary is even lower than what the analysts were projecting. And so he comes in at number five. What is the gap between what he's supposed to be worth and what he signed? What is, what is that gap supposed to be? 3.6 million. Three and a half million. Okay. Yeah. I mean, he's a backup center playing 15 minutes a night beside behind Vooch. Yeah. yeah. What, are we supposed to get really excited? It's three and a half million bucks. It's backup center for the Bulls. It's all right. Sorry. It's the underdogs podcast. I mean, I'm talking about an underdog signing. Okay. All right. Fine. You didn't bite on that one. I'll give you another one, which I'm sure you guys are going to be excited about. I know Jordan will be at least. Oh, here it comes. Checking at number four. It's not Tyus Jones. It's oh. not Tyus Jones. I'm sorry, but it was his teammate last year. Kyle Anderson, slow-mo signs with the Minnesota Timberwolves for a two year, $18 million contract. That's an average annual salary of $9 million, but the <laughs> analyst projected at 13. So he comes in at a pretty steep discount of $4 million per season. I love that signing for Minnesota. They need basketball players. They're going to have a big front line there with Rudy Gobert, Carl uh, Anthony Towns, and of course, Kyle Anderson. They got Anthony Edwards. I love that signing for them. And it's just... They're look. They're going to look pretty good. It's a steep price for for Rudy Gobert, but that's a nice nice piece for them. Versatile, knows how to play. 
can pass. And I think that my biggest concern actually with them with this experiment of playing the two bigs is that you need a a really savvy point guard to make that work. I don't know that D'Angelo Russell is that guy. Like if you had a Chris Paul running that team instead, I'd be like, all right, they're going to figure this out. Yeah, that's right. But I feel like you plug Kyle Anderson in and he just sort of makes things run smoother. And he did a great job. Plus the weekend arrival. He was really good for Memphis. Checking in at number three, former Chicago Bull, former Washington Wizards, Otto Porter Jr. Toronto signs him for two years, $12.4 million after the championship run with the Golden State Warriors. The prediction was $12 million a year. They get him for about six for a difference of $5.6 million. So Otto Porter Jr. goes to Toronto. Nice little signing there. Number two, as I already said, Bruce Brown, Denver gets him, plucks him away from the Nets the what, what if team of the Brooklyn Nets, they get him out of there, bring him to Denver to play next and Nikola Jokic. And who knows who's going to fill out that front court with all the injuries. Um, but the number one, it is not Tyus Jones. I'm sorry, Jordan. Do you want to know who, or does anyone want to take a stab at who might be the biggest value signing of free agency so far as we record this? Hmm. Is that vet the bet music? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Dante DiVincenzo. Dante DiVincenzo! (laughs) Nice job! Oh. The big ragu. The big ragu. White Dante coming in at a two year contract with the champion Warriors, $9.3 million. He was expected to get over 12, and he landed at. 9.3 9.3 for over two years. The difference is $7.6 million in savings on an annual basis. There you go. White Dante. How did that happen? Like, how did the Kings give up picks and try to get him? And then they just basically bailed. He did have a bad, you know, return, but he's still a really good young player in the league. And the Warriors just got him for nothing. And then traded for another redhead, by the way. <laughs> He's 25, and I thought there was no way he was going to go this cheap because, as you mentioned, there was sunk costs, right? I thought the Kings were going to, no matter what, pay to keep him because of what they gave up to get him. That's really surprising. Do you see any pattern here in who's undervalued either in terms of, you know, none of these are really gigantic contracts. Um, There are younger players involved than I expected. What do you think? So glad you asked me this because I was blown away by this finding. What was in common? I'm not trying to do a Winhurst impersonation here. <laughs> guys, guys, guys. Something very strange happened in free agency. <laughs> what's in common? Do you remember what's in common of those five players I just named? Andre Drummond, Kyle Anderson, Otto Porter Jr., Bruce Brown, Dante DiVincenzo. What's in common? They all switched teams. <laughs> I mentioned this because the five biggest overpays were re-signings. Resignings: Bradley Beal, Zach Levine, Anthony Simons, Marvin Bagley III, and Victor Oladipo all come in as the biggest overpays in free agency. Endowment effect. It seems like the opposite should be the case, that in order to poach away a player, you should have to overpay or else they're going to resign with their team. But actually, the best value plays in free agency were taking other people's players or other teams players. And so I thought that was really interesting. And I don't know what, what it says, like Dante DiVincenzo did the Kings just say, yeah, we're good on him. And the Nets say that about Bruce Brown and the Warriors. I know they had the huge tax bill, but Kyle Anderson, 
all these signings, it doesn't really make sense that they came so cheaply because those teams should value those players. Didn't the Kings also have rights to go over the exception? Yes. They could have paid Dante DiVincenzo a lot more without suffering any penalty for it, right? It makes it even more curious. So strange. And then they go in and acquire two other two guards in Malik Monk and Kevin Herter. And I guess the sunk cost fallacy is, hey, you know what? You did make the that trade, but you know what? Move on. It's a sunk cost. Don't don't incorporate a bad decision and compound it with another bad decision by giving more money to Dante DiVincenzo, right? That's that's a big behavioral economics problem is is that sunk cost fallacy. But they didn't do that because he could have been had for a very nice number. Maybe We'll find out that they did offer him a deal and the Warriors just because of their culture and coming off the championship uh, that he decided to sign for lower with the Warriors. Who knows? Well, and the other thing is that if it were any other team, I would say, well, they they saw him up close. (laughs) Clearly, they weren't impressed. They let him walk. But it's the Kings, so I have no faith in their ability to evaluate him up close. Right. You have to throw out the idea that he's underappreciated for no good reason, because there probably is no good reason. But that's also true about um, Bruce Brown. He was just totally underappreciated as a net. I saw him on, uh, you probably did too, on uh, vaccine commercials more than I did. That's true. He did the whole don't miss your shot campaign for Pfizer. They promoted him more than the Nets did as an underdog, hardworking you know, do whatever it takes to win kind of ball player. I felt like that the whole Bruce Brown commercial campaign was like a direct response to Kyrie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was really. Hey, Katie, yeah. can you do this? No. Okay. Yeah. Go down the roster till they Let's found somebody next. to do it. Br- Blake Griffin. Okay. No. Okay. Yeah. Bruce Brown. Okay. okay. Let's sign him up. All right. Here's, here's the other thing. Uh, Peter, you mentioned the, the commonalities. Like what, what do we, how do we read into those? similarities between those players who are steals. The other thing is I ran the numbers on. So I have 32 signings here in this, in this study, I ran the numbers on the position, which position was overvalued or undervalued in the free agency market based on the projections. And what's fascinating to me is that we talk about, this is the era of wings and versatile, you know, big, big wings. Well, it turns out that the most undervalued position in terms of what the projections said they should be making and what they actually were making small forwards. Mm. So you had, of course, we mentioned Otto Porter. We mentioned, um, Kyle Anderson, but also Nick Batum and your boy, Jordan Brenner. Amir Coffey didn't go for a lot of money. The Clippers brought him back at a nice price. Uh, Joe Ingles coming off the injury. The Milwaukee Bucks upgrade and kind of get another playmaker next to Giannis. Um, the small forward position, we're supposed to get about $10 million in annual salary, and they checked in at 7.6, the, by far the lowest. And the most um, the most overvalued position is this shooting guard. We kind of, you, you got to probably pick that up in the overpays that I mentioned, Bradley Beal, Zach Levine, Anthony Simons, but like, like power forwards and forwards, basically most undervalued position. I don't know what that kind of says about where we are, but I, I was surprised by that. I actually thought you were going to say bigs were still overvalued when you think about the money that like a Marvin Bagley got. Yeah. But I've run out of any analytical reason to expect anything better from him because every number paints just the same picture. But apparently Detroit, it's the opposite of the Dante DiVincenzo situation because apparently they saw something they liked 
if they want to keep him around. He can score, right? The same issue that I had with another Duke guy is Jaleel Okafor is like he can score from the block and then what, right? And then what? And Paolo Bancaro maybe fits into this if he's squint hard enough that he's also an offensive forward uh, player who doesn't play much defense and you could put him in the same bucket. I think he's more talented, those two other guys. But they they went really high in the draft just like Paolo did. Um, I think... Marvin is one of those projects that is a really costly project, right? I can understand getting him for like $4 million, $5 million a year, but they paid thirteen for him a year. So not a great signing by Detroit. You know what we didn't talk about, though, is the incredibly underrated finishing moves the Utah Jazz made by adding Malik Beasley, Patrick Beverly, and Jared Vanderbilt. We can just start fitting them for their rings now, right? That's going to be a fun locker room. You can't deny that. Other than that, I don't know. What's what's the over-under on their wins now? What have Utah's prospects sunk to in light of these great finishing moves? The last I saw, they were plus 8,000 to win a title, and even that felt too generous. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wait, they're plus 10,000 now. They just slipped again. You want to keep harping on the Jazz? Go play some Jazz flute, Jordan, all right? I'm done. We're done talking about the NBA. It's not even basketball season. It's the offseason. Let's get to something that's happening right here, right now, and let's get back into baseball. Is that okay with you guys? Fine. Talk about games that are actually happening on the field. Fine. The NBA playoffs are heating up, and so is the action at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. With same-game parlays, live betting, odds boosts, and so much more, don't miss out as the NBA postseason winds down. Maybe you think the Celtics aren't so great. Maybe you think minus 200 is not a fair price for them to win the East. Maybe you're looking at an underdog in the West, like Dallas or Minnesota. Either way, hop on the DK Sportsbook app. And if you're new to DraftKings, you got to check this out. New customers bet 5 bucks to get 150 in bonus bets instantly. So download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code LAF. That's code LAF for new customers to get 150 in bonus bets when you bet just 5 bucks. Only on DraftKings. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY, that's 467-369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas, 21 plus, age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.co slash bball for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. I think it's time for something we like to call, that's right, a Stats 101. What do you say? It's Stats 101 with Peter Keating. Mathematical concepts from a guy who, like myself, went to Harvard. Go Crimson. It's the middle of the season, and so we're looking for comebacks, turnarounds, rebounds, and the best analytics way to do that is to look for gaps, either for players or teams, between what has happened so far and what we reasonably could have expected to happen, which we will then use to predict what will happen in the future. And so for Stats 101, we're talking about expected outcomes using StatCast data 
in MLB. Um, now that we track every single pitch, throw, chin scratch, and ball in play, here's what StatCast does. StatCast looks at the exit velocity and the launch angle of every ball hit by a bat. And then it compares those two factors with all similar historical outcomes, balls in play, and it creates a hit probability, probability of an outcome for a batter. So if your exit velocity is 110 miles an hour and your launch angle is 23 degrees, that has a certain probability of becoming a hit or a certain kind of hit, like a double or a home run. It puts that, StatCast then puts those probabilities together with a batter's actual strikeouts and walks and creates metrics like expected batting average, expected slugging percentage, and maybe most important, expected weighted on base average, which we call WABA. Um, WABA basically is weighted on base percentage, taking all the different possible outcomes, blending them together and scaling it like on base percentage. So if a guy has a WABA around 400, that's outstanding because on base percentage of 400 is outstanding. If you're in the mid three, 300s, that's pretty good. This basically takes out ballpark factors and defense, and it expresses the skill and the value that any ball in play has. Over time, the gap between what a batter is doing and what StatCast data expects him to do should shrink. Doesn't always happen in half a season, doesn't always happen in a season, but we can use this data to say these batters have performed much better or worse then their actual actions would indicate they should have, and therefore we can make predictions based off of that. There's your Stats 101. I got so excited about StatCast data. I kind of left the baseball scene a few years ago when it started coming on, but part of me thinks, is StatCast data over-promising, under-delivering? Because I get excited at the holy grail idea of like true talent or true hitting talent or true pitching talent and that everything is just luck and this team has really good defense and he was hitting into a really good defensive uh, outfit on a particular day or the wind was blowing in and take out all those lucky factors and you can get a true talent level and then you go on the waiver wire in your fantasy league and say, I'm just going to pick up all the guys who are underperforming based on stat cast data that they're barreling left and right, right into people's gloves, getting super unlucky. But I feel like, Peter, it's not as cut and dry, right? Like it's not super predictive. I think Tom Tango, who's kind of the godfather of modern analytics or sabermetrics, he said StatCast data is more descriptive than it is predictive. And so I'm wondering where are you on that spectrum of like, should we be using this batted ball data um, or StatCast data as like, oh, who are the next hot teams or who are the underperforming teams? And we should go find them on the betting markets and bet heavily on those teams or in your fantasy league and bet heavily on those players. So there's a few things you got to keep in mind, especially when you're looking for underdogs. One is anything to do with batted ball data is full of noise. Mm. Correlations from year to year in batting average, even slugging percentage, are very low. And the correlations between expected batting average and batting average are pretty low. There's just so many factors that go into play. Even when you compare a ball, a batted ball, to its most similar historical comps, 
different outcomes are always going to happen because of weather, because of luck, because of psychology, because of things we don't even know we should be studying yet. So you can't pin it off. So you have to remember there's a lot of noise. Regression to the mean is always more powerful than you expect. There's a powerful undertow pulling everything back toward average. And there's stuff going on that we can't track, even though we think we're tracking everything right now. So you have to build in a lot of time for things to regress and then estimate your true talent levels with some pretty wide margins for error. It's easier to actually project pitchers than it is hitters because pitchers, the three true outcomes, do correlate. The strikeout, walks, and home runs allowed do correlate much better year to year. So I would say look for extreme cases where the gap is really big between expected data and actual and expect it to take some time. I mean, and as always in baseball, never bet on Thursday because of what happens on Tuesday. That said, are there some extreme examples that we can latch on to either as fantasy owners for guys to buy low on or as as we're going to get into looking for signals for big second half turnarounds? So maybe a, maybe a team has a couple guys who are just underperforming what they should be doing based on batted ball data. And that might turn the team around. I've got my fantasy app open right now. I know Corey Seager, for instance, I'd read an article about a week ago, and I'm sure this is still the same, that he should be hitting 287, not 227. This was in The Athletic. And it had, should have a 565 slugging percentage, not 422. So how, how, I, I actually own Corey Seager on my, uh, my, my fantasy team. How many other Corey Seagers are out there? So Corey Seager is a great example, and he's a great example of how you should use other data to back up StatCast data. Corey Seager's batting average on balls in play is only 239. Um, His average exit velocity is around 91 miles an hour, which is in line with the rest of his career. So, and his his launch angle is 15.1 degrees, the highest of his career. So there's no reason why you shouldn't look at his crazy StatCast data and say, this guy's gonna have a great second half. I mean, yeah, he should be hitting something like 300. He should be slugging something like 520. He's down at 236 and 426. Um, there's actually, I, I hate to bring this up, but there's a few players who the stat cast difference is enough to determine whether you really think they should even be in the league or not. I mean, Spencer Torkelson of the Tigers is hitting under 200, but stat cast data says he's hit like a guy who should be hitting 240. That's a big difference, especially this year. And if you have him or you haven't gotten him yet, you should keep the faith. He's going to be an excellent power hitter. He's just hit, he's hit balls at fielders an inordinate amount of times this season. And I'll give you one other example which Jordan's going to hate, but Joey Gallo is oh, hitting. Oh God, I knew you were going there. Joey Gallo Ugh. is hitting 165 <laughs> this year. I don't think, I don't think any player, even the best defensive shortstop or the best power hitter in baseball, has value to a team hitting 165. But his Statcast data suggests that he should be batting 196 Whoa. with a slugging percentage of 462. And Joey <laughs> Gallo is like the one guy in baseball who has a 196 hitter has some value. Well, I've seen Joey Gallo. He's bailing out. He's swinging ahead of everything. He looks terrible. Looks like Jordan could throw him three change-ups and he'd strike out. I do think he probably needs to go to some small market team far away from the haters in New York like Jordan. Just play Miguel and Duhar, okay? It's not that hard. Once he does, he'll get back to bashing 40 home runs a year. Yeah, I'm sure. You know, this works in the other direction too. I think the best fantasy advice might be to not trust players 
who are way overperforming their numbers. Now, if you look at the, the hitters with the biggest gaps between their expected WABA, weighted on base average, and their actual, it's Jose Ramirez and Paul Goldschmidt. They're great hitters anyway. Don't worry about them. But on the top 10 list, Brendan Donovan and Juan Yepes. Okay, the Cardinals just slid these guys into the lineup. They've been playing great, but their actual performance isn't as good as they've looked. And 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 don't I, I would not rely on those guys to fill regular holes in your fantasy lineup. Um, and I actually wouldn't think the Cardinals are a great bet because they're relying uh, for a second half to catch the Brewers. And we'll get into this now because those two guys are about 30 or 40 points each in weighted on base average below what they've demonstrated so far. You make an interesting point, and, and, and I kind of want us to get into team turnarounds for the second half. I looked at baseball prospectus and, and fan graphs, and what I found interesting was there was their expected standings for the rest, the rest of the season were very conservative. So I, they didn't have a lot of teams deviating from the norm. So the Yankees, who are on a pace to win 116 games and won 58 games in the fir- out of their first 81, they only expect them to win 46 in the second half. Well, they regress everything heavily to the mean, which you should. So it's almost like if you split five, a 500, like five, going 500 and then whatever the first half was, that's what they'll, they, they will never expect to know, you know, never expect a team to win another 60 games in a half a season. Right. But uh, Tom, on the other hand, did some research on second half turnarounds in the last 10 years. And, and that paints a, uh, a rosier picture for what teams can do after a rough first half, right? Every year, I, I looked back until 2012 at the biggest differentials between your first 81 games and your second 81 games, first half versus second half. And every year, there's about two or three teams that have a differential of double-digit wins. So like 10, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. And there's always going to be a handful of teams that do it. The harder thing, Jordan, is predicting those handful of teams that do it. So Fangraphs is regressing to the mean because it's saying, you know, like, yeah, there's going to be some teams that really take off in the second half, but we can't really predict that. Uh, We don't really think we can predict that with great accuracy, but there are going to be some teams. The best one on the record uh, for the last 12 years or so, and I took out the the pandemic seasons, um, there's two teams that pop up. The Dodgers of 2013 and the Oakland A's of 2012. They approved their win-loss column by 16 games. So the Dodgers were 38 and 43, and in the second half, they were 54 and 27. The Oakland A's in 2012, they were 39 and 42, and then in the second half, they were 55 and 26. So, like, you can do it. There is going to be a team that's going to get about double digit improvement in their win column going into next seat or into the second half. Trickier thing is making the pick. Who is going to be that team? And Jordan, are you feeling as clandestine as clairvoyant as Brian Winhurst on, on first take? Are you going to make a pick here on who's going to be that double digit win improvement team? Something strange has been happening in the NL East. (laughs) There's five teams in the division. Very strange. There was the weirdest trade, guys. One of them has been, we've been harping on since the beginning of the season. And then at the quarter poll, we mentioned them again. And now, just as we near the halfway mark, they've won six games in a row. They're still a game under 500, but with a positive run differential. 
Those are the Miami Marlins. And I think that with that pitching, they're still fourth in division and runs scored. But I I think they have what it takes to, after being, say, a 40-win team in the first half, to be a 50-win team in the second half and and at the very least nab a wild card. Are you guys with me? Are you guys sticking? We've been we've been team Marlins this whole season. Are you sticking with me? Okay, so the 2013 Dodgers who pulled off this amazing feat that Tom mentioned, what did they have? What do these teams tend to have? They tend to have such good starting pitching that they can roll over the rotation and win 10 of 12 or 8 of 9 pretty easily, right? The Dodgers had that with Kershaw, Granke, and uh, I think Ryu was a was a rookie that year, successful one. The Marlins clearly have that. And the Marlins develop young pitchers, especially in the bullpen, exceptionally well. And I think that means they'll be able to flip a bullpen guy or two to bring back greater value in trades, right? Somebody will, will trade for, I mean, Pablo Lopez or somebody. I mean, so I think they're 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 really well they're really well positioned. If you, it, the real question is like, you think it's like they're set up for the long term? Like right now, I, I don't want to get off topic, but it's interesting because I was thinking about this this morning. Would you rather have the Marlins roster or the Phillies roster right now, long term? I love the Marlins. I love the Marlins as a long term play. They do need to develop a couple of hitters. I mean, they haven't done that to anywhere near the extent they've did. They just keep popping out great new starting pitchers. I just sold high on John Birdie. So I, I picked him up like a couple of weeks ago and then he, now he has like 20 steals for me and I sold high on him, but they've got a lot of injuries here and Trevor Rogers, I'm putting the, him in that category because he injured his ability to get players out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> However, I did pick him up in my fantasy league for his most recent start, a, a win by the way, against the Washington nationals. He, you know, walked a couple guys again. I think his, his ratios have been tilting towards normal. And if he rounds into form and pitches like the ace that he was last year, this is going to be a turnaround team. And they've got some injuries again that they're going to get healthier. And that Dodgers team, they had tons of injuries and they got healthier and they went on a run. So I like the Marlins. I also like the prospect of if you're looking for an underdog to win it all, I'm talking the World Series. Oh, come on. The Red Sox underdog to win it all, make a run here. Chris Sale sees on the comeback trail. His ratio right now is uh, 14 Ks, one walk in seven innings in minor leagues on his rehab assignment, returning from the rib cage injury. Evaldi, Evaldi's coming back. They got this ref Snyder dude who's 31 years old, utility guy. <laughs> Rob Ref Snyder. Whose expected WABA is 484. You said 400 was good. How about 484? His expected batting average is 370. A Nomar Garcia para Ted Williams-esque 370. Okay. The Red Sox right now are underperforming based on their Pythag uh, win-loss by about a couple games. Their rotation is going to strengthen. Their eight, they have two aces on rehab assignments coming back into the rotation and Trevor story is here. He's back after a long hiatus to start the season. I think the, the Boston Red Sox right now have good value at plus 3000. I'm seeing tied for ninth in major league baseball and DraftKings right now, plus 3000 behind teams like the Padres and the Brewers and the Braves and the blue Jays. They're third in their own division in the, in the um, world series chances. But the Boston Red Sox, I can hear Neil Diamond now. 
Sweet Caroline. Bum, bum, bum. Bet on the Red Sox. World Series hopes. You're not even looking at the right team in that division. The team that has been crushed by injuries more than any other team in baseball, according to our favorite site, Man Games Lost, is the Tampa Bay Rays. Sure. We know what they can do when they're healthy. They're 44 and 37, even with all those injuries. As a Yankee fan, they scare me a lot more than Boston. Wow. Did Tom poo-poo the idea of, I mean, I think he said the Red Sox were behind teams like the Padres, Braves, and Brewers. I think all, all of those teams have something in common, which is they have much stronger starting rotations than Boston. Oh, because our starting rotations in the minors right now on, on the comeback trail, like I said. Yes, right. Exactly. Hanging by a couple of ulnar ligament threads. Yes. Even I, in discussing the Utah Jazz, didn't refer to strikeout to walk ratios in less than 10 innings during minor league rehab starts as a leading indicator of picking a championship, a championship program. Good Lord. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think Trevor Story will probably have a better second half, but Rob Ref Snyder, wow, I, I'm having flashbacks. Didn't did he play under Stump Merrill for the Yankees? <laughs> How long does he go back? Was he a Bill Verdon Yankee? I, I don't he washed out there. I don't know. Peter, you got anything that isn't total home cooking like Tom? Oh, this is not home cooking. I pointed to straight objective analysis, to Pythagorean and then Chris Sale. Speaking of Pythagorean, there are two teams in baseball that have lost more games than they've won, uh, even though they've outscored their opponents. One is Miami, the Marlins, the Sugar Kings. And the other one is the Texas Rangers. I don't think the Texas Rangers are going to make the World Series, much less win everything. But they're also an old team. But I do think they're a really good bet to perform better than they already have, led by the guy who's the most likely uh, big name in baseball to do so, Corey Seager. Um, you know, it's funny. In part, this is just stats and probabilities that aren't intuitive. Like, like there used to be this mentalist who would come out on Johnny Carson. For you young people who don't remember Johnny Carson, it was a national TV talk show. And he'd, you know, there'd be an audience of a few hundred people and they'd always be able to find two people who had the same birth date, even though there were only a couple of hundred people in the audience. The odds of that, the odds of that happening are really high. The odds of it picking a single day, like saying, okay, July 15th and two people having that birthday are astronomical, right? So it's really hard to pick the team that's going to win 10 in a row or 12 in a row, but there's always a team that's going to be, that's likely, it's always likely there's a team out there that'll do it. Um, so in the spirit of picking a team uh, where the odds aren't great, but they've underperformed so far, I will say the Texas Rangers, even though they may not be going anywhere long-term. Look at that lineup. I mean, the lineup's full of 30-year-old players, but uh, they haven't performed up to their expectations. I'll give you one other team that's just interesting to watch. They're actually playing well, so you wouldn't expect – a turnaround wouldn't necessarily be the right term, but a team that could really distance themselves much more is the Milwaukee Brewers. Two interesting facts about them. One, they've got one of the six easiest remaining schedules left, which bodes well. And then the second thing, they've played – 36 home games, but 47 road games so far. So that's going to turn around in their favor as well. So they only have a three-game lead over the Cardinals right now, and I expect that to, to lengthen. Uh, that's a good team, and they've got some some better luck coming their way, I think. And 
preseason Jordan MVP fave Willie Adamas is hitting only 210. His expected batting average, according to StatCast, 255. At which point, because of his power and his on base, he's a he's a very very valuable player. So there's a couple of guys. And I mean, Rowdy Tellez is not going to be their best hitter all season, I don't think. I'll give you one other team that's now under 500. Yeah, give me another team that's going to be a runner up to the Boston Red Sox this season. Go ahead. Under 500, they've been outscored by 45 runs. They're really not showing any signs of playing well, but they have the third easiest remaining schedule, and they do have a lot invested in this team. So I could see them being buyers at the trade deadline. That's the Chicago White Sox. They certainly have a lot of talent. They certainly have a lot of players who maybe aren't performing up to the level you'd expect. But in a weak division with the resources they do, uh, I would watch out for them. And by the way, they're still the favorite to win that division on the betting market. So I, I'm not unique in, in expressing that point of view. Yeah, and by the same token, don't buy. I wouldn't buy into Cleveland. Cleveland had a great hot streak, but all the underlying data says they're a 500 team. I do like Minnesota, but that White Sox pick is interesting. So you're putting the Cleveland Guardians on ice, Peter, is what you're saying? Yes. You know, we could talk about other teams like the Orioles who are coming out of the deep freeze or how Toronto is a way better play than the Red Sox. And they're from Canada. Look, the Yankees are just going to skate by everyone. Let's be fair. That's a real power play. What's the goal here? (laughs) We're just going to keep going here. We're going to shut out the Red Sox. I'm going to put you in the penalty box after that one. Puck off. There's no need to fear or quaver. Underdog is here to save her. Underdog. We're joined now by professor of statistics at St. Lawrence University, Michael Shuckers. Professor, welcome. Thank you, Peter. A pleasure to, to join you. Okay, so... Just by way of background introduction, before I remove this trucker-sized hat now, <laughs> I just want to point out that stat heads in other fields will know about things like in baseball, dips, FIP, expected ERA, the work done by statisticians and sabermetricians, I should say, mostly on an amateur level to separate the effects of defense and fielding from pitching. The analogous work in hockey is pioneered by our guest today, Michael Shuckers, who created Defense Independent Goaltending Rating, which basically, so he's the first guy to look at and analyze all the shots taken in an NHL season, adjust them for location, shot quality, whatever other factors, and come up with goalie ratings adjusted for the defenses playing in front of goalies, um, which I think helped launch the website called Brodurasafraud.net. <laughs> And also made us all realize again that, yes, hot goalies are valuable, but you can't predict when they're going to get hot because the goaltending that you're seeing is as much a function of defense as it is of goaltending, unless you find some ways to sort that out. So welcome. And the first question I want to ask is, how did you do that? And is are we all supposed to look at tracking data now to sort out what's going on? Or are there statistics now publicly available that let us evaluate players that weren't available back when you started researching the NHL? That's a great question with a lot of parts to unpack there. Let me take the the last part. The the tracking data is now available, um, but it is available to teams, not to the public. Um, There's been some, you know, little drops and doses, um, you know, small packages and subsets that have been put out there. 
um, that people have uh, had a little bit of a chance to analyze. But for the most part, it's been siloed within teams. Um, uh, folks like me don't have access, which we did, um, you know, trying to push and put a little pressure on um, NHL. But uh, I don't foresee that uh, becoming public in the near future. Well, it was kind of a leading question because you'd think that if this data was warehoused inside the league, that might mean there were people eager to use it. But just by way of background, the NHL, uh, I shouldn't say the NHL itself because NHL.com has posted interesting collections of real-time stats, which are goldmine for research. Um, But a lot of the folks inside the NHL were the most resistant people in sports to analytics. Um, You guys have been to the Sloan Conference. You see how every year uh, they put Brian Burke, the former GM of the Maple Leafs, up on a panel to say things like, uh, you know, whatever the quote is about analytics is a guy, (laughs) a drunk stumbling around a lamppost. And and there's actually a word that that developed inside hockey called fancy stats, which was hockey's term for advanced metrics. So if you were if you were doing anything other than going out and brawling, basically, um, you were into, quote unquote, fancy stats. Um, so, and, and partially as a result, partially as a result of hockey's old school atmosphere, historically, the draft has been, uh, I don't mean the past few years when it's become very professionalized under NHL central scouting and it's on TV, but for a long time, the draft was just wacky. I mean, the NHL execs used to get together in the back rooms of some Montreal hotel and basically, had their favorite guys, and then throw darts and drink a lot, as far as I can tell. I mean, there were three consecutive NHL overall number one picks in the 60s who never made the NHL, ever. Three busts at number one overall in a row. There was a year where one GM uh, got tired of what was going on, so he made up a name of a Japanese player and announced that they had drafted him. And the whole thing was a scam, just to, just to joke around with the media. So the NHL draft has very humble roots when it comes <laughs> to analytics. But from what I understood, Mike, and maybe you can shed some light on this, because of the tracking data, a lot more teams were getting into analysis, apparently going on hiring sprees, hired a lot of people who were writing around the internet to come work inside teams. Um, but around 2020, a lot of that also stalled because games were canceled and budgets were slashed because of covid and that things have been kind of a standstill for the past couple of years. Is that how you hear it, or do you hear that things are still picking up? I think there's been some hiring. I do think that you have probably 30 of 32 teams that are pretty serious now um, about having a full-time analytics person on staff. Um, You know, I think part of that is the tracking data um, is something that is available. Uh, the two, um, I think the two, I think Ottawa and maybe Anaheim might be the two without a full-time person. Um, there's a, a really good Twitter follow, and I don't know, actually, I don't remember her last name, but her Twitter is Hey Shay, uh, with about six Ys in there uh, somewhere. And uh, she does a really nice job of tracking sort of who teams are publicly saying that they've got hired uh, and they've got on staff. And so, um, but Ottawa and Anaheim seem to be, um, you know, the most behind in that mental arms race. Let's get to 
player evaluation as it pertains to the draft, because the draft's coming up right now, you looked at players drafted over a 10-year period in a study that I know you presented at the Sloan Conference. I think the research paper was called Draft by Numbers. And you compared the players who were drafted in order that they were taken, and correct me if I'm wrong about any of this, but looked at how many games they played in the NHL, how much time they spent on the ice, and then lined up how well they did. Um, and you found a correlation of about 0.4 between dra- real-life draft order and real-life performance. And then you built a model of your own to project how young players would do based just on public information, just on stats and news that was available at the time. And you put the prospect in order of how your model would project them and the correlation between that list and how well they did in real life was about 0.6. Meaning just by reading newspapers, you could line up players significantly better in terms of projecting how they were going to perform on the most basic level than NHL teams did drafting them. Could you talk a little bit about that and, and what you think is is behind that? I think you summarized it nicely there. The idea really comes out of you know, back in the the mid-2010s, sort of analytics uh, in hockey is still a sort of a battleground, um, you know, of the Brian Burks versus, you know, some of the folks in the blogosphere. And just this idea of, you know, the the draft seems to be just a very noisy process. And part of that is um, that you're drafting 17 and 18-year-olds and trying to project what they become when they're 23, 24. And that's, um, you know, that's a hard, hard job for sure. Um, but yeah, taking what we know about them. So what are their performance in uh, sort of the junior leagues or the leagues that they're playing in Europe? Um, looking at that, looking at what we know about them sort of physically. So height and weight and, um, you know, one measure that we used really, um, which is a place, you know, we're thinking about giant killers and and insight there. Um, I think, you know, sort of uh, dense players. So one of the things we have in there is sort of weight over height. Um, so, you know, there's a big difference between the strength of somebody who's 5'10", 160 and somebody who's 5'10", 190. Um, and, you know, it turns out that denser players, I think, uh, perform better long term. And then um, also we took the the NHL central scouting. So, Peter, you mentioned that earlier. We took their central scouting rankings and put that into the model. Um, and so, you know, we built a statistical model um, to rank the players. And as you said, we were able to do better. Um, and it was, you know, it was not really that sophisticated a model. And there are a lot more variables that we could have thrown in, but just wanted to, to try it and see if we could do it. And, um, you know, uh, we got lucky in some sense, but certainly uh, I think we exposed some inefficiencies. So two things. Yeah. Uh, one, now you know why I love this, you guys, because we finally have hit upon body density as a market inefficiency. I feel like we're getting back to the hot dog contest. Though. It's my favorite sports finding ever. PJ Tucker, stand up. (laughs) Do you think things have changed much since you did that work? Or can you see, I mean, there's a lot to adjust for in hockey. You mentioned a few of them, the so much variation among levels of competition, both the different levels, but also different countries and different leagues. Like 
you know, we probably see players on the U.S. national team a lot more than we would players in Canadian junior hockey just to gather information. But also, like, how do you project guys from playing in, the, you know, in Finland to how they would do in North America? Uh, but also, as you mentioned, also age and also the lineups that they play in. Um, what data should folks be looking at now if we were going to build a similar model or something to do even better? You think it'd still be possible to stay ahead of NHL GMs on this? So I would say that there's probably five or six teams uh, that are doing things like what we did probably on 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 steroids. Uh, if we're talking about you know body density here, but on on steroids in terms of the the modeling and their capabilities. So who's the best? Who who are the who has the reputation of being the best? couple of franchises in the league at this? That's a really good question. The, the It's hard to know because you can't see the actual influence inside um, organization. Um, but certainly the, the organizations that do it well, Tampa seems to do it well. Colorado has a couple of really good uh, analytics folks. Toronto has a very large staff. In fact, their head of analytics just got promoted to uh, assistant GM. Um, I would expect good things to come out of Buffalo. So Sam Ventura, who I have a lot of respect for, was with the Penguins and moved over to the Sabres a couple of years ago. Uh, and he's hired a couple of good people to work with him there. Um, the group in Seattle hasn't had great results, um, but... You know, I have a lot of respect for, for the folks that they've hired there. They seem committed, right? Even though they haven't had great results yet. Yeah. I noticed uh, in mentioning Colorado, six players on the team that just won the Stanley Cup were actually originally drafted by the Avalanche. But all of them were first round picks and most of them high level. You know, Nathan McKinnon, number one overall, leading the way. Yep. The NHL draft seems really, really top heavy. There's a study came out in the last year that said 96% of top five picks play 100 or more games in the NHL. 63% of first rounders end up with careers of 100 or more games. But the number goes down to 31% for second round picks. And it goes down from there. So that if you're a seventh round NHL pick, basically 10 or 15% of the time, you'll go on to a career of just you know one plus seasons. It seems really top heavy. So I don't know. Is that is that a model you think – can people – can other teams actually replicate the Avalanche's path? If the path is, you know, accumulate half a dozen one, two, three, four, or five picks in the draft, is that is that realistic or am I missing something about the draft? Yes, you have to get lucky on that. And Colorado certainly got lucky and they did well with their picks. But I think there have been other teams, Edmonton, um, I think has similar composition in terms of top picks. Um, and um, blanking on some other teams recently that have had uh, a lot of top picks but haven't done as well. I think, you know, part of the issue in hockey is, you know, those top picks can only be on the ice, you know, 35% of the time. Um, and, and so you've got to have the depth and you've got to have the, the, the strength in your second and, and third lines if you're going to be able to compete. So you would say then, I'm guessing it's not just a hockey thing where there's just a very small handful of players that come out that are worth having. 
there's still, it's not totally systemic. There's still ways to draft well later on and come up with value based on what teams aren't doing yet. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, we, there, there probably are lots of uh, other metrics, you know, that we aren't collecting that probably, you know, would improve your model and improve your performance. Um, you know, at the same time, I, I do think, um, and there's, I think, lots of research out there that once you get into the fourth, fifth round, it's, it's really hard to find a, a, a diamond in the rough. Well, I've seen suggestions that just based on who's scouted and who sticks and who gets famous and who gets some notoriety, that American and Canadian hockey players obviously get heavily scouted. There's an old hockey saying, if you're, if you're under 5'10", you have to prove why you should be drafted. If you're over 6'3", you have to prove why you shouldn't be. So I'm guessing shorter players, there might be some value picks there from, from what you're saying shorter and denser players. Um, and also age makes a huge difference because these guys can be drafted at such junior levels that their bodies can change significantly, right? So trying to construct a profile here who might be a sleeper that we might be looking at and it's looking like a short, dense, but fast winger, right? Or <laughs> as opposed to a center or a defenseman from some country we've never heard of, preferably. Makes me think. So I went to the 2012 draft in Pittsburgh. And Pittsburgh had the, I think, the eighth pick. Sorry, they traded for the eighth pick. They're trading Jordan Stoll, who goes on to be the center for Carolina. Uh, and they pick uh, Ole Mata. Uh, at that time, Ole Mata is probably about six foot, maybe about 170 pounds. Um, but I happen to actually be picking up some stuff for my kids uh, in the Penguin shop afterwards. And he's there with his dad. And his dad is 6'3 and about 240. And you think, oh, well, maybe this kid's going to develop, uh, you know, and, and put on some more height and weight. And, you know, obviously he's gone on to have a, a, a really nice career. Um, and I think he's, he's still playing in the league. So, uh, you know, I think one of the things, you know, potentially that teams can do is, you know, potentially look at, at parents, um, you know, for, for 17, 18 year olds, they're still growing, you know, it's a lot easier for, you know, somebody who's their dad, you know, was an athlete or mom was an athlete. You can see potential for growth there, but that's something, something folks could be looking at. I just think that one reason analytics is cool is because, um, a lot of times people associate any sport anything. If you're a basketball, football, baseball, or hockey fan with kind of like untrammeled aggression, smash mouth, right? And that's one way to beat anybody in a sport is to line up bigger, stronger players and beat the hell out of them, right? And and that becomes associated with like winning. Um, and, but, and, you know, just as analytics is kind of devalued rushing in football and, um, you know, elevated on base percentage in baseball, um, it's interesting to me that you don't have to be, um, you know, Frankenstein on ice to to win. And the shift, I think, towards recognizing the value of puck possession and possession time and also depth of your squad. The depth on your squad doesn't have to be goons because beneath your first line, the second and third lines, like Mike's saying, take up so much time on ice for all those reasons. Um, it opens up different different kinds of players body types and the skills that 
you know, we, we can actually appreciate as having value if you play it right. I certainly think, right, that if we look back over 20 years, um, you know, we are uh, looking at more skilled players, right? And that skill matters more. You know, at the same time, if we have two players and one's 5'10 and one's 6'3 and they're equally skilled, you know, we're going to take the 6'3 guy because he's more likely it is still a physical game, right? And they still have to take uh, a lot of abuse and a lot of beating uh, out there on the ice. All right, let's end with a sleeper pick. I'm going to throw a name out. I don't know if anyone else knows who the hell I'm talking about, but I have had my eye on a guy named Nathan Gaucher. He is uh, a forward, a wing, not a center, not a defenseman, not an overvalued type for uh, Quebec in the Quebec Junior Hockey League. And I don't think he's on anybody's top 20 lists, but I think he should be on top 40 lists because he is fast. He is big. He's got all those attributes together. I just think that because of the league. What's his density, body density? (laughs) I don't know. What's the metric for that? Do we use BMI? Like, what do you use for density? Weight over height? Yeah, we just did weight over height. It's not quite BMI, but it seemed to work pretty well. Is there a number that, uh, like, what do you do? Kilograms over meters or something or what what's the number we should be do you remember the threshold no it's not a threshold as much as it is the higher you are on that density the better you are the more likely you are to make the nhl all right well there you go all right now i'm looking up gochet yeah can you verify that it's a real person there mike <laughs> well i can't verify is a real person but it certainly is ranked by central scouting oh there you go there's an up-and-coming young goalie i love by the name of art vandalay <laughs> I didn't say Bobby Boucher. I said Nathan Gaucher. Where's he ranked? Is he ranked in the top? Yeah, so he's 16. Oh, 16. Oh, oh. Among North American skaters. So this is this weird thing the NHL does is separates the rankings, European uh, non-North American skaters versus North American skaters. Where's Slavkovsky on the uh, European list? That is the that's like the guy who I think is the best player in the draft. He's yeah. huge. He's young. He's Slovakian. He's played in Finland. If you watch the Olympics, you saw him score again and again against the U.S. But he's he shot up the charts. He may be even like a top five pick now. I would be surprised if he's there at five. Well, I live in Jersey now, so I'm rooting for the Devils to get Slavkovsky. Who's Michael's uh, sleeper underdog pick for us? I actually haven't gone through and done any analysis this year. Sorry, I you know that academic side has sucked me in a little too much this year, and I haven't had time to dig into it. I've got a question for you, Mike. There's a story in the NBA that the Phoenix Suns, who just came off a finals appearance not too long ago, basically bailed and abandoned the draft, saying it's too much of a crapshoot. It's hard to project the careers of teenagers. And it's just, it's not a worthwhile endeavor for front offices. Are there NHL teams that have more or less punted on the NHL draft? And what do you think about that strategy? I haven't heard of any teams doing that. I would say it's probably not a great strategy to do overall. (laughs) But if you look as, you know, Peter went through some of the statistics of what you've got after the third, fourth round, it is not unreasonable for teams to just say, uh, we're going to worry about the first, second, third round and not pay much attention after that, you know, and there might be a reasonable strategy to say, I'm going to take my fifth and sixth round pick and I'm going to trade them for somebody who's third, fourth line already in the NHL rather than going the risky, it's only a 5% chance is going to make the NHL anyway. I think Colorado actually 
they didn't make many trades, but they included a bunch of lower level draft picks in their trades. And it seemed like they were giving up a lot. So I don't think anybody's punting on their first round picks, but there might be some smart teams willing to throw throw in, like Mike just said, fourth or sixth round picks or whatever for essentially nothing. That's interesting. I think actually the Penguins a couple of years ago traded a seventh round pick for nothing. Straight up future considerations. We'd like to go home early. Thank you very much. Here you can, you know, have our, our seventh round pick. Check, please. Yeah, that's what they said. Do you think the top of the draft is so valuable that it encourages tanking? Probably. <laughs> we know in the, the years when there is going to be a generational talent, right? The Penguins knew when Sidney Crosby was 14 years old that he was likely going to be great. Same was true. Austin Matthews coming out, Connor McDavid. These are folks, you know, when they're 14, we already knew that they were on people's radar. And so certainly I do think that that possibility exists. All right. Well, I think we're going to wrap it up here. Thank you very much for your time. Have a fun draft. Have a good rest of the school year. Thank you. I appreciate you guys having me on. It was fun. Peter, you should have asked him about the Utah Jazz. Yeah. Apparently, I embarrassed myself. Apparently, it was obvious to everyone else on the show except me that I was droning on and on. (laughs) Not just an incorrect, like a farcical, stupid way about the Utah Jazz. I think all I really wanted to say was they shouldn't trade their whole team, but you know, you start out talking about socialism, you end up defending Stalin and that's what happened to me. And it was just, it was terrible. So every conversation now ends with a lame recommendation that I start, you know, yeah, yeah. When's an NHL team coming to Utah? Yeah. Okay. All right. I'll quit Stalin (laughs) and I'll wrap it up there. There we go. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done.